0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: This week, guest host Vivian Langford interviews songwriter David Rovix about his latest 116 degrees in Portland Town. From 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia, Vivian interviews Alex Smith about Canadian heat records. It is all set to readings from premier novelist Kim Stanley Robinson and his recent climate book called The Ministry for the Future. Here is real radio from Station 3CR Australia.
2: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Kim Stanley Robinson is incredibly famous among science fiction readers but his latest novel, The Ministry for the Future, is not science fiction and is reaching a much wider audience. It is more like an imaginative exploration of how climate change could catapult us into a massive project of restoration. There's emergency technology, new forms of agriculture and cooperative work. The power of the banks is harnessed and the climate criminals are punished. In this series of episodes of the Climate Action Show, we will tantalise you with readings from the novel and commentary from experts in the field. Today we will swelter in a deathly heatwave in India. Then, Alex Smith from Radio EcoShock in Canada and David Rovics in Portland, Oregon will join us. I contacted them because they are experiencing extreme heatwave conditions right now and it's unprecedented in that part of North America. I want to find out from them how it is and if people are connecting this to the coal, oil and gas they continue to use and export over there. But first let's hear this story, the first chapter. Mark Spencer is in New Zealand reading part of the first chapter which opens the Ministry for the Future in India. One of the main characters is Frank. He's a young American working in a clinic in Uttar Pradesh in the 2020s. The conditions outside, a mixture of heat and humidity, are passing the point of survivability. And Frank has one air conditioner.
3: At the clinic he opened up. And people filed in. Without instruction, they went upstairs to the room where the AC was running. Sat down on the floor. Quickly, the room was full. He went back downstairs and stood outside the door and welcomed people in if they showed any interest. Soon the whole building was as full as could be. After that, he locked the door. People sat sweltering in the relative cool of the rooms. Frank checked the desk computer. Temperature on the ground floor, 38 degrees. Perhaps cooler in the room with the AC unit. Humidity now 60%. Bad to have both high heat and high humidity. Unusual. In the dry season on the Gangetic Plain, January throughout March, it was cooler and drier. Then it grew hot, but was still dry. Then with the soaking of the monsoon came cooler temperatures and omnipresent clouds that gave relief from direct sunlight. This heat wave was different. Cloudless heat. And yet, high humidity. A terrible combination. The clinic had two bathrooms. At some point, the toilet stopped working. Presumably, the sewers led to a wastewater treatment plant somewhere that ran on electricity. Of course. And might not have had the generator capacity to keep working. Though that was hard to believe. Anyway, it had happened. Now, Frank let people out as needed so they could go in the alleys somewhere. As in hill villages in Nepal where there were no toilets at any time. He had been shocked the first time he saw that. Now he took nothing for granted. Sometimes people began crying, and little crowds surrounded them. Elders in distress, little children in distress, quite a few accidents of excretion. He put buckets in the bathrooms, and when they were full he took them out into the streets and poured them in the gutters, took them back. An old man died. Frank helped some younger men carry the body up to the rooftop patio, where they wrapped the old one in a thin sheet, maybe a sari. Much worse came later that night, when they did the same thing for an infant. Everyone in every room cried as they carried the little boy up to the roof. Frank saw the generator was running out of gas, and went down to the closet and got the fuel can and refilled it. His water jug was empty. The taps had stopped running. There were two big water cans in the refrigerator, but he didn't talk about those. He refilled his jug from one of them, in the dark. The water was still a bit cool. He went back to work. Four more people died that night. In the morning, the sun again rose like the blazing furnace of heat that it was, blasting the rooftop and its sad cargo of wrapped bodies. Every rooftop, and looking down at the town, every sidewalk too, was now a morgue. The town was a morgue, and it was hot as ever, maybe hotter. The thermometer now said 42 degrees, humidity 60%. Frank looked at the screens dully. He had slept about three hours, in snatches. The generator was still chundering along its irregular two-stroke. The AC box was still vibrating like the bad fan it was. The sound of other generators and air conditioners still filled the air, but it wasn't going to make any difference. He went downstairs and opened the safe and called Preeti again on the satellite phone. After twenty or forty tries, she picked up. What is it? Look, we need help here. We're dying here. What do you think? She said furiously. Do you think you're the only ones? No, but we need help. We all need help, she cried. Frank paused to ponder this. It was hard to think. Preeti was in Delhi. Are you okay there? He asked. No answer. Preeti had hung up. His eyes were stinging again. He wiped them clear. Went back upstairs to get the buckets in the bathroom. "'They were filling more slowly now. "'People were emptied out. "'Without a water supply, they would have to move soon, "'one way or the other. "'When he came back from the street and opened his door, "'there was a rush, and he was knocked inside. Three young men held him down on the floor, "'one with a squared-off black handgun as big as his head. "'He pointed the gun, and Frank looked at the round circle "'of the barrel end pointed at him, "'the only round part of a squared-off thing of black metal.' The whole world contracted to that little circle. His blood pounded through him, and he felt his body go rigid. Sweat poured from his face and palms. Don't move, one of the other men said. Move, and you die. Cries from upstairs tracked the intruder's progress. The muffled sounds of the generator and then the AC cut off. The more general mumble of the town came wafting in the open doorway. People passing by stared curiously and moved on. There weren't very many of them. Frank tried to breathe as shallowly as possible. The stinging in his right eye was ferocious, but he only clamped the eye shut and with the other stared resolutely away. He felt he should resist, but he wanted to live. It was as if he was watching the whole scene from halfway up the stairs, well outside his body, and any feelings it might be feeling, all except the stinging in his eye. The gang of young men clumped downstairs with generator and AC unit, Out they went into the street. The men holding Frank down let him go. We need this more than you do, one of them explained. The man with the gun scowled as he heard this. He pointed the gun at Frank one last time. You did this, he said, and then they slammed the door on him and were gone. Frank stood, rubbed his arms where the men had grasped him. His heart was still racing. He felt sick to his stomach. Some people from upstairs came down and asked how he was. They were worried about him. They were concerned he'd been hurt. This solicitude pierced him, and suddenly he felt more than he could afford to feel. He sat on the lowest stair and hid his face in his hands, racked by a sudden paroxysm. His tears made his eyes sting less. Finally, he stood up. We have to go to the lake, he said. There's water there, and it'll be cooler. Cooler in the water and on the sidewalk. Several of the women were looking unhappy at this. And one of them said, you may be right, but there will be too much sun. We should wait until dark. Frank nodded. That makes sense. They made their way in the afternoon shadows to the lake. Hotter than ever. No one on the street and sidewalks. No wailing from the buildings. Still some generators grumbling, some fans grinding. Sound seemed stunted in the livid air. At the lake they found a desperate scene. There were many, many people in the lake. Heads dotted the surface everywhere, around the shores. And out where it was presumably deeper, there were still heads. People semi-submerged as they lay on impromptu rafts of one sort or another. But not all of these people were alive. The surface of the lake seemed to have a low miasma rising out of it. And now the stink of death, of rotting meat, could be discerned in one's torched nostrils. They agreed it might be best to start by sitting on the low lakeshore walkway, or cornish, and put their legs in the water. Down at the end of the walkway there was still room to do that, and they trudged down together and sat as a group, in a line. The concrete under them was still radiating the day's heat. They were all sweating, except for some who weren't, who were redder than the rest, incandescent in the shadows of the late afternoon. As twilight fell, they propped these people up and helped them to die. The water of the lake was as hot as bathwater. Clearly hotter than body temperature, Frank thought. Hotter than the last time he had tested it. It only made sense. He had read that if all the sun's energy that hit Earth were captured by it rather than some bouncing away, temperatures would rise until the sea boiled. He could well imagine what that would be like. The lake felt only a few degrees from boiling. And yet sometime after sunset, as the quick twilight passed and darkness fell, they all got in the water. It just felt better. Their bodies told them to do it. The heat began to go to his head. His body crawled with the desire to get out of this too-hot bath. Run like one would from a sauna into the icy lake that ought to accompany all such saunas. Feel that blessed shock of cold smacking the breath out of his lungs as he had felt it once in Finland. People there spoke of trying to maximize the temperature differential, shift a 100 degrees in a second, and see what that felt like. But his train of thought was like scratching an itch and thereby making it worse. He tasted the hot lake water, tasted how foul it was, filled with organics and who knew what. Still, he had a thirst that couldn't be slaked. Hot water in one stomach meant there was no refuge anywhere. The world both inside and out well higher than human body temperature ought to be. They were being poached. Surreptitiously, he uncapped his water jug and drank. Its water was now tepid, but not hot, and it was clean. His body craved it, and he couldn't stop himself. He drank it all down. People were dying faster than ever. There was no coolness to be had. All the children were dead. All the old people were dead. People murmured what should have been screams of grief. Those who could still move shoved bodies out of the lake or out towards the middle. They floated like logs or sank. Frank shut his eyes and tried not to listen to the voices around him. He was fully immersed in the shallows and could rest his head back against the concrete edge of the walkway and the mud just under it, sink himself until he was stuck in mud and only half his head exposed to the burning air. The night passed. Only the very brightest stars were visible, Blurs swimming overhead. A moonless night. Satellites passing overhead, east to west, west to east. People were watching. They knew what was happening. They knew, but they didn't act. Couldn't act. Didn't act. Nothing to do. Nothing to say. Many years passed for Frank that night. When the sky lightened at first to a gray that looked like clouds... "'but then was revealed to be only a clear and empty sky. "'He stirred. "'His fingertips were all pruny. "'He had been poached, slow-boiled. "'He was a cooked thing. "'It was hard to raise his head, even an inch. "'Possibly he would drown here.' "'The thought caused him to exert himself. "'He dug his elbows in, raised himself up. "'His limbs were like cooked spaghetti, draping his bones, "'but his bones moved of their own accord.' He sat up. The air was still hotter than the water. He watched sunlight strike the tops of the trees on the other side of the lake. It looked like they were bursting into flame. Balancing his head carefully on his spine, he surveyed the scene. Everyone was dead.
1: Radio EcoShock Well, let's talk about the human body. What are the upper tolerances that we can handle?
4: Um, It's interesting. When you think about it, we like to keep, well, we need to keep our core temperature within a really very narrow range, between about 36 and 37. And when the outside air temperature is higher than that, then it's very difficult for us to lose heat.
2: This is Dr. Elizabeth Hanna. She's a world expert on the impacts of heat waves on health This is from an interview with Radio Ecoshock.
4: And we generate heat just through our metabolism, but it's interesting that sort of 80% of the energy produced by working muscles is heat, so that has to be dissipated. And when you have temperatures outside the, the human body, the ambient temperature, that's getting close to that, then it's really difficult to shed that extra heat. And so if we can't shed it, we store it. And as you know, when you're temperature gets to about 38 you start feeling pretty ordinary uh, 38.5 you're certainly reaching for the Panadol um, in hospitals where I've started my working career we'd be in intensive care we'd be certainly giving um, not only aspirins but antibiotics you're really quite ill when your core temperature is about 39 and of course people die when their core temperature reaches 40 41 we really can't tolerate that now uh, And and what's really significant is that it depends on what your normal range is, your normal natural environment, but there is an upper limit. And if you think about when people like to put the air conditioning on or or the heating, they tend to set it at around about 22 degrees, which is 15 degrees cooler than our body temperature. And of course, this basically means that when the outside temperature is much hotter than our body temperature, then this is when it becomes problematic.
2: Now let's get back to the Ministry for the Future. In the book, as a result of the great Indian heatwave, things move fast. New people take power in India and dangerous technology is tried. An Indian pilot describes the seven months of aerosol spraying that they undertake to create something like the effects of the Mount Punatubo volcano. Thanks to Lizzie Maddox for reading this extract from the novel by Kim Stanley Robinson.
5: We flew to 60,000 feet, as high as the planes could get. Higher would have been better, but we couldn't do it. It took a couple of hours, as we always carried a maximum load. Two planes got caught in the so-called coffin corner and stalled catastrophically and one of the crews didn't get out. Once up there, we deployed the fuel lines and pumped the aerosols into the air. The plumes looked like dumped fuel at first, but they were really aerosol particulates, which hold mostly sulphur dioxide and then some other chemicals, like from a volcano, but there wasn't ash like in a volcanic explosion. It was a mix made to stay up there and reflect sunlight. Manufactured at Bhopal and elsewhere in India. We flew most of our missions over the Arabian Sea, so the prevailing winds of late summer would carry this stuff over India before anywhere else. We wanted that. It was for us we were doing it, and some felt we might also avoid some criticism by doing it that way. But soon enough, what we released would get carried by the winds all over the stratosphere, mostly in the northern hemisphere, but eventually everywhere. There it would be reflecting some sunlight. Even in India, you could hardly see any difference in the sky. For all our lives, we were living under the ABC, the Asian brown cloud, So we were used to dusty skies. Our operation only made things a little whiter by day. The sunsets were sometimes more red than before. Quite beautiful on certain days. But mostly things looked the same. The sunlight we deflected to space was said to be about a fifth of 1% of the total incoming. Very important, crucial stuff, but it's not really possible to see a difference that small. Global effect was said to be like Pinatubo's eruption in 1991 or some said a double Pinatubo. Total release was taken to the stratosphere in several thousand individual missions. We had a fleet of only 200 planes, so we each went up scores scores of times, spread out over several months. That was a lot of work. Of course, it was a pretty small effort as these things go. And if it helped to prevent another heat wave, it was worth doing. We knew the Chinese hated the idea and Pakistan, of course, and although we flew only when the jet streams were running toward the east or northeast, there were times when those countries lay in the path of dispersion. And all over the world, people pointed out that the ozone layer would get hurt, which would be bad for everyone. Once, a heat-seeking missile flew right by our plane. Vikram dodged it at the last minute. The plane squealed like a cat. No one ever found out who shot it at us. But we didn't care. We did what we were told, and we were happy to do it. Everyone. Had lost someone they knew in the heat wave. Even if they hadn't, it was India. And it could happen again anywhere in India and really anywhere in the world. As our officials told people over and over, even farther north, the heat wave could strike. Europe once suffered one that killed 70,000 people, even though Europe is so far north. Well, well, more than half the land on Earth is at risk. So we did it.
2: Frank in later chapters. He does survive the heat wave, but his case of post-traumatic stress is so vividly described that you feel you know just what it's like. Here is Kim Stanley Robinson just a little clip from an interview he did explaining why he began his novel in India.
6: With India, I wanted to stick with uh, the trouble that I had inflicted on them in the first scene and not just abandon them. In story terms, it seemed very important to me to say, look, if something that bad happened to India or I describe it as happening in India because they are one of the places that are most susceptible to this wet bulb 35 uh, heat index that will kill people, that I wanted to follow it and stick with it. And there are very many hopeful signs in India. And since I published Ministry for the Future, we have seen a general strike in India that is being very poorly reported in the West, where astonishing numbers of people have walked off the job on the same days to uh, object to Modi's uh, racism and his brutal right-wing approach to the problems that that are facing India and the world. Radio EcoShock.
2: I've invited Alex Smith to talk to us from Canada. It's partly because 3CR listeners who follow Radio EcoShock every Sunday at 6am will be thinking of him as heat waves with temperatures of nearly 50 degrees Celsius hit the western part of Canada. Many people love your show, Alex. So tell us how you are managing.
1: Well, we don't go out during the day now. It's been a heat wave that's lasted almost a month. We've seen temperatures higher than ever seen before in Canada, 49.6 C in Lytton, BC. Uh, It was that hot 45 and over for three days in a row in and they just kept setting a new record every day and about two days after that the entire town burned to the ground mm. uh the, it's thought that a passing train may have sparked the tinder dry the, the forest uh, conditions are extreme right now so uh, it did burn down and this is one of the saddest events that's happened uh, in our part of canada in a long time
2: Well, after so many years interviewing scientists who saw all this coming, I think your response will be different from the average Canadian journalist who can hardly connect heat waves with burning fossil fuels (laughs) even yet. What do you think?
1: Well, no, Canadian media are very slow. They're finally starting to say the words climate change and link it up with these kinds of extreme events. But they're not very uh, clear that it really is climate change and what the science has, has said. And certainly don't talk about uh, they'll have to reduce fossil fuels because when you look at the ads for most of these uh, television channels, they are pickup trucks that burn gasoline and diesel fuel uh, and they are trips on airplanes and all sorts of things that require fossil fuels. They don't want to upset their advertisers, so they really don't talk about what's causing it. It's just uh, some sort of accident, I guess. Yeah. It's
2: the same in Australia. You just wonder when something will put a rocket um, under us you know we've got covid at the moment we talk about that non-stop so there's practically no climate news on the radio at all so and even then they just mention climate change but they don't connect it to australia america canada indonesia huge saudi arabia huge and venezuela like all that there's a club of not a very big club of people who export fossil fuels so it's not just domestic emissions
1: Yes, we're certainly in that position. Our prime minister talks a very good game on reducing uh, climate emissions, but also funded a new pipeline to take what we call tar sands oil, uh, right through the port of Vancouver, uh, something like a tanker a day, and uh, just a terrible expansion of one of the dirtiest fossil fuel sources in the world, the tar sands of Alberta. So we have that, but I want to say about this heat, that there were really three factors that made it deadly here. We had hundreds of people die in British Columbia, which has a pretty low population. In the Vancouver area, hundreds died. And the reason for that is, People there are not adapted to such heat. They've never seen it before. No one has air conditioning there except the very richest houses. Uh, I lived there 25 years, never had air conditioning, never met anybody who did. So there was no way for people to really cool down. The buildings aren't built to cool down. You can only open some of the windows a few inches on these apartment towers so that nobody will fall out. It's a safety measure, but really you couldn't get any air going in there. So there was the lack of adaptation. What somebody in Darwin may be able to face quite often in Australia just wasn't the case for people in Vancouver, in Portland, in Seattle and and all up that coastal area, not ready for it, not adapted.
2: Mm. Wow. Well, a Canadian climate scientist uh, called Catherine Hayhoe said I just read in the paper, she said studies show Canada is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. Well, I think she probably means the whole Arctic circle just below that um, northern hemisphere. Why is that?
1: We don't know why we have Arctic amplification is really the technical term. Why is it warming so much more rapidly in the Arctic than anywhere else, really? And I don't have a good answer to that. I haven't talked to scientists who can say, well, here are the mechanics of it. We know some of it, of course, but we don't really know. We know that the same thing is happening in Russia. Siberia has been very, very hot. Uh, Up in northern Sweden, Lapland, uh, again, extremely hot, record hot, more than ever seen before. So uh, this is happening in the northern hemisphere, particularly because of our land masses and the small size of the Arctic Ocean, which is surrounded by land, versus Antarctica, which is surrounded by gi- gigantic pools of oceans, uh, as is Australia and, of course, New Zealand.
2: Yeah. Well, I've read that you have 17,000 glaciers in British Columbia, which just makes the mind boggle when you think of those mountains. But the heat wave impact there, one scientist said, would be you know, in the future, if these glaciers um, continue to melt like that, will affect ecosystems and even your supply of hydropower. Is this affecting people's thoughts about the future? I I
1: can't speak to how people are thinking right now. I think everyone's in such a shock from COVID. And now we have this climate heat jolt and, and drought right across the whole Western United States. There are power dams Right now in the western United States that can't deliver electricity because their reservoirs are far too low. What should have been Great Lakes behind these dams at this time of year are now just sort of the narrow river channel that was originally there. So it's going to affect energy, but also all the people along the coast who want to install AC, air conditioning, all of a sudden... There's a huge demand. Just for fun, I called up a local hardware store. They have an ad for an air conditioner. They said they would get it in by 2022. (laughs) But that will create more energy demand. And then where's (laughs) that energy going to come from? Is it going to be oil and gas in the United States? Uh, We don't know.
2: Well, at the beginning of this program, we're reading an, um, a chapter from a, a novel called *The Ministry for the Future*, and in that, the air conditioning breaks down, and everything in a heat wave just creates mass death. And it's very graphic how interdependent we are on so many systems. We need to be thinking about all of them.
1: We're we're living in machine-assisted life now on planet Earth. That's really what it's breaking down to. It's it's as though you you're in the uh, hospital ward and they put you on a breathing machine we're we're sort of on breathing machines practically and some cities of course the smog is so bad that again people have EPA air filters going in order to be able to breathe it there's a movie called Brazil one of the uh, Monty Python gang did that movie and in it uh, people are totally dependent on machinery to keep their air livable as though they were on another planet. And that's that's what it's like now in Arizona and Nevada and parts of California. Everything is totally air conditioned and people run from one a cool spot to the next.
2: Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you about the marine heat wave because that's what made me call you in the first place. It shocked me so much. Apparently millions of clams, mussels and starfish have been washing up dead on the Vancouver beaches. And I wondered if enough people can read these signs, you know, Indigenous people would call that a sign, you know, that's a sign from from nature to us. And I wonder if people are connecting this again with the projects, these fossil fuel projects, because I ask you because Australia, we had a billion animals apparently died in the bushfires last year. And there was widespread grief about the animals, you know, just so horrific that we could have, if we could have prevented it, but we continue to go on with our coal and gas projects. This year, you know, COVID relief is all about gas projects.
1: Yes, getting back to normal. And I'm, I'm very afraid of getting back to normal because normal was destroying the earth by frivolous use of fossil fuels, uh, you know, totally inefficient vehicles. And you could buy an electric one, but you don't. And people take the whole family to Fiji for a wedding party and on and on it goes. Uh, I don't know whether that desire to return to normal and have a full, full life after COVID will overwhelm the counter-desire to make do with less and to use a lot less energy and create a lot lower emissions. I think we will come to that cutting edge where people finally say and demand from their politicians and themselves that we have to act. I don't know when that time will come.
2: Well, we've said about the media. What other gatekeepers do you see? You know, who is putting out that message? There are films. I've mentioned a novel. A change comes because people start to think differently. Where do you see that coming from?
1: Certainly the politics is well behind the people in a lot of these issues. And we don't really live in a democracy in the sense that if you, you know, take a poll of people... Perhaps 70% of people want action on climate change, but in fact, governments are listening more to their lobbyists, I'm afraid, at this point, and whoever can raise big campaign funds to pay for media ads, and unfortunately, our media has been taken hostage by some people who really don't care what happens to this planet, apparently, not mentioning any names, uh, Mr. Murdoch. (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, we know the same. It's the same profile here. Canada has a lot of similarities to Australia, um, you know, in its media, its culture. A lot of differences, though. I noticed you've just passed a climate bill with targets for nineteen uh, no, for 2030 and 2035 and 2040. We still haven't done that. We haven't got a, a plan. And And you said in the last post-growth show you did, you say, will we plan our way back down the mountain? And I wonder, do you see any... Examples in Canada of um, the climate action community or that like the transition towns community, you know presenting solutions and alternatives.
1: You know I haven't really been able to focus on that because I feel we're in such a dire emergency that almost the time for small demonstration projects is already passed. To have people flying over the Rocky Mountains which are always covered with snow and see large patches of them brown, Uh, to have the river that runs past our house go so low now that it should have been like that at the end of August at the best. The water supplies here are being limited. People are being told to let their lawns die. Uh, The next step will be to let their gardens die, I suppose. So I think that's the kind of emergency we're in. And uh, the talk of 2035 is uh, just far too late and putting it off. So I, I'm not sure exactly how we're going to turn this around. We showed we could do major changes with COVID. We we changed the economy right around. People made fantastic changes to their lives and stayed home and gave up a lot for their relatives and so on. It's going to take some sort of similar level of social agreement and action to stop this climate train from just running right over us.
2: Mm. What about the First Nations people? Because I, I've read a lot about them leading... The um, effort to stop the Tar Sands oil pipelines. But in Canada, the Indigenous people there, are they front and center of turning things around?
1: They're very powerful. There's no question about that, partly because they enjoy a kind of nation within a nation status in Canada. And so they have the ability to address other levels of government that uh, a protest group, like an environment group, is not entitled to do. And certainly, Aboriginal people here have a lot of respect from Canadians. And so when they speak out on these issues, I think it it registers quite strongly. So certainly they're a huge part of the mix and in some cases are leading the effort. They're willing to put some more down on the line that people who are comfortable uh, in their suburbs are apparently not yet.
2: Yeah, I heard that you have a new governor general and it's a woman and she's an Inuit person
1: that's correct so that shows some hope but uh, you know this wouldn't be a complete uh, program without mentioning also that canada is also cresting in a wave of shame for the number of uh, native people who were killed in schools that were allegedly supposed to teach them to be like white people Uh, they were taken away from their families and i won't go into great details there but in even our latest Canada Day celebrations uh, for the National Day of the country, a lot of people took that as an opportunity, not just for apologies, but hopes for reconciliation. Now that we realize, again, what a great wrong was done to the first people who lived here.
2: Yeah. well, Shame can go two ways, but I hope it can turbocharge the kind of people getting behind you know the people who wanting to protect the environment as it is rather than continuing to extract from it. And as we know the, the companies make a lot of profit, but then we pay the price down the road and the environment does. So as so we've seen the mussels landing on Vancouver beaches, that's to me a sign that we've got to turn this
6: around.
1: Well, and you know it sounds straight to say that you do something for your grandchild or your grandchildren. But that really is who is going to pay this terrible bill. I mean, right now, it's getting harder. And I believe extreme weather events will make life harder and harder. But even so, it's the next generation and the generation after that who will not find those mussels on the beach, who will not find the water in the river that they need, who will not find a lot of things that uh, we grew up taking for granted.
2: Well, thank you, Alex, for your valiant work. Um, listeners in 3CR know you very well. And I hope other people hearing this will tune into your podcast. I'm sorry to have interrupted your holiday. And this is a frightening time where you are. But I'm very grateful really for your unique perspective. And I think listeners, if you would like to hear more of Radio EcoShock, you just have to get the podcasts at www.ecoshock.org. It's quite easy.
1: You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the World. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org.
3: This is Radio Ecoshock with your host, Alex Smith.
1: You are listening to guest host Vivian Langford as broadcast on 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne.
2: And now from Portland, Oregon, where the 2021 heat wave is taking lives, we'll talk to singer David Rovix. In a minute, I'm going to play your new song, 116 degrees in Portland town. But first tell us how you're managing in the worst of it. How, what were you seeing?
0: I mean, it it got up to 114 degrees uh, in my uh, apartment, and uh, the 116 measurement was a, another part of town, <laughs> with has a, which has a bit more pavement than you know. The people suffering are the most are the ones living in the most paved areas, and of course, who don't have central air conditioning, you know, because the the uh, the power they the power threatened to fail, but. It didn't for most people in portland it, it did for maybe a, a couple thousand households but basically we we kept the power on so people with central air conditioning i think were generally fine but the majority of people here have like if they have any ac they have like one unit and like ours it's just pointless completely pointless in that kind of weather it does it is literally pointless it doesn't matter So so you just get your shirt wet i mean that's I think people don't know that trick, but I mean, I think it's probably more familiar to people in Australia, I assume, I hope, but if you just get your clothing wet, you'll survive, you'll be fine, actually, you know, you'll stay cool, but people don't know that trick and so they just suffer and die, literally, literally? and it's, it's not like they don't have access to water, and most of these people dying do have access to running water, I mean, there's also a lot of people living on the streets, as you know here, which which of course is, and some of them have died during the heat wave but that's also true, but mostly it's people in apartments who just don't know how to deal with this kind of weather, yeah.
2: Well, my person I spoke to the other day from Canada said the same thing. People aren't prepared. And so that's something you can do. You can prepare prepare, but prevention's what I'm really on about. I'm on about climate action because we've got to stop it going further than this. The human body can't take a lot more than what we're getting now. Yeah. And my experience of heat waves, I was a teacher for 40 years, you know, and I used to remember being in the classroom in a heat wave and I'd feel really unreasonable and angry and I just sort of couldn't think straight and i i've heard there yeah. are riots often that break out just because it's just it's it takes away some part of your faculties really in your song you has a guy who flips out is that what you're experiencing tell us about him
0: well there is um i mean definitely that during the heat wave not not at the height of the heat wave but during the heat wave uh one of the uh, things that happen which actually unfortunately happens uh, fairly regularly here is uh somebody was having a mental health crisis and this the guy who was having the crisis himself actually called the police uh to get help and then they came and shot him. uh but uh that's uh so that's that uh, that was but of course yeah these things uh, are more likely to happen during heat waves i'm sure that's true for all kinds of different reasons
2: including the police affected i imagine yeah yeah, yeah.
0: they're I mean, and they wear so much clothing. Those like, they're like soldiers, you know, it's all that. They must be so hot and uncomfortable.
2: Yeah. The great hope is that these horrific weather events, you know, turbocharged by coal, oil and gas, you know, that they'll wake up a rebellion in people. That's the great hope. But what you call, you call it a a movement of renown. You say we can have a dystopia or a movement of renown. How visible is that movement in the United States?
0: certainly there's a lot of people who are very concerned about the whole situation and there's a lot of i guess you know what what you what these days we call activism but i mean it's not uh, anything uh, anything close to approaching the kind of movement that is really needed uh, for under the circumstances i mean the circumstances are so extreme you know where we're experiencing now the end of uh, the climate as we knew it. And it's, uh, you know, it's climate chaos. We're, we're talking about, you know, huge numbers of fish and other sea creatures just dying off because of the heat. And you know, the, the trees, entire trees are burning, entire old trees are burning, not just the, the bark. You know, trees that normally uh, withstand fire well are just being completely burned. It's a whole different new reality and, uh, and I think, you know, you can hear lots of politicians like Biden and lots of others who are talking a good line about what needs to be done. And of course, there's uh, there are few in the Congress who, who really, if, if we actually implemented the kinds of policies they're talking about, we we could actually get somewhere, you know, like Ocasio-Cortez or people like that. But they're the, a the tiny minority and the, the mainstream of, of the Democratic Party is not interested in the kind of change that's uh, needed. And And, uh, and that's. And it's, I think, fairly important to point out to anybody who doubts what I'm saying, you got to look at the local. Don't don't listen to what Biden says about climate change. Climate change is just a big, wildly large, impossibly impossible to understand concept at 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 its sort of peak, you know, of complexity. But just look at the local situation. Look at how development is going in all these cities. You know, you know, you know. If you know anything about climate change, you know that we cannot be just. Building more and more cities in the deserts, you know that we have to be doing things completely differently in terms of urban Living and how we structure cities and everything like that That's very crucial for survival in the future is we, you know, we need to fireproof and floodproof Cities and we need to stop building in flood plain, plains and stop building in deserts and you know Obviously, you know stop building where there's no water, you know, of course, obviously But th- this is not what's happening you know the building and building and building is just going on everywhere and it's like totally unsustainable and yet the prices of the houses just goes up and up and up and who i don't know who what kind of insane person is buying a house for half a million dollars in a desert that will not have any water next year let alone in 10 years you know but people are doing it largely banks i guess but i don't know how they decide this, these houses are worth that kind of money because soon they'll be burned down or they you know there will be no water i mean there will be the place will be unlivable i don't know why you know what and then what and then what are they doing with these houses who's going to want to buy them
2: well look david wait, let's listen to your song now um so listeners it's called 116 degrees well that's fahrenheit in portland town so and that's
0: 46.6 celsius It's bombing Baghdad, there's a famine into gray. Fires are burning in Flagstaff, blocking out the day The wind blows so fiercely, the grass is turning brown And it's 116 degrees in Portland Town The spas and churches, dripping with blood A tower collapsed in Miami, damaged from the flood Before the summer's over Who knows how many will drown And it's 116 degrees in Portland Town The prices of houses are rising like never before Along with ocean waters as the temperatures soar The developers develop, water tables go down And it's 116 degrees in Portland Town Congress, they're discussing infrastructure. Whether it should be built to withstand fire, they're not sure. They found a dead man in an RV wearing a thorny crown, and it's 116 degrees in Portland Town. Outside a motel, a man was flipping out. He called 911 to tell them about need for mental health care so they came and shot him down and it's 116 degrees in Portland town Don't know where we're going What kind of shit's in store I know I'm not the first to feel like I'm knocking on the door of either a new dystopia or some movement of great renown It's 116 degrees in Portland, valley. In the farms in the valley, they're out picking cherries Dropping dead on the field with a basket full of berries City of bridges, each one like a frown It's 116 degrees in Portland, valley. No way out, even north of the border. Welcome to the New World Order, produced by criminal corporate clowns. It's 116 degrees in Portland now.
2: your best songs you know you're the chronicler of our age and it's just all those little specific local things that are in the news i even checked in the media they were true those things you reference in the song and i think it's like blake's poem london where the suffering is connected it's baked in to the cause of the suffering you know and i really wonder why doesn't the media i've been checking through u.s media and canadian media li- lately and they do not make the connection they can talk about climate change but that's a sort of abstraction but they do not report in the same article about historic heat waves they do not say new oil pipeline opened or new gas field opened. Yeah. they just cannot report them in the same uh, article and it's it's the same in Australia we have plenty of things on tv now about climate change but they don't really connect it to australia's exports of coal or gas you know which is so No
0: they just do their best to blame us for yeah. for the problem they just they just they're, they're now talking about how climate change is a terrible problem it's very real and, and they're at least admitting that which is some kind of progress, but it's not nearly enough. You know, they have to actually do something about it, not just say, you know, talk about it it exists, you know. And then when they talk about doing something about it, uh, it really so often basically comes down to blaming us for uh, the individuals uh, for the problem and telling us that we need to eat less meat and we need to ride bicycles. Mm -hmm. And I uh, am so sick of hearing people say this who are not uh, corporate shills because of course mm-hmm. i understand why a spokesperson for shell or exxon Mobil would want to tell us all to eat more to, to eat to eat less meat and mm. to ride our bicycles mm. uh but uh, you know and and uh and it is just an incredibly offensive thing to hear these corporate shills saying this stuff but it is more troubling to me to hear so many um you know, uh, apparently progressive uh, folks uh, buying th- this kind of blame the victim line, you know.
2: And I agree. And in consumerism, you can cut down on a lot of things, but you can't cut down your complicity with the fossil fuel system that then in fact fills everything. But I want to keep focus on the media, or let's say the culture, you know, singers, artists, who, who's writing TV plays at the moment? I mean, why don't they connect those things? You know, that this is, a, this is like a huge, like a Shakespearean drama, you know, the, the fossil fuel person, you know, who's only really not many of them in the world. That club of countries, including Australia, are continuing with something that is absolutely destroying the whole um, fabric of the world. So yeah. how come that's not even an interesting subject? You know, like uh, Blake says, the mind forged manacles. To me, the mind is manacled to something that's now destructive. Well why, why do you
0: think that just seeing like who who was covering the oil fire in the middle of the uh, Gulf of Mexico uh, last week it, you know the 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 ocean was burning oh. you know and and uh, you know a lot of people saw the footage because that the the videos of the burning ocean went viral and, and you know tens of millions of people saw this footage but then if you watch a lot of the news uh, channels uh, at the same time as this footage was going viral I barely heard any mention of it on American public so-called television, radio, BBC, Al Jazeera. But I think that, that basically that's the problem with a lot of the media, not just uh, here in the United States, but around the world is it's so often it's owned by oil companies or it's owned by energy companies or it's owned by billionaires like Murdoch or whoever else who, who really you know, have the interests of the energy companies at heart. And,
2: well, one of the indigenous women I heard speaking on a talk, she she said, "Look, Australia and America these are these are colonialist societies. They're young societies, and they don't have the capacity really easily to self correct, and therefore they just go on blustering and go on pushing, as we are. You know, we're just pushing the wrong barrow." But um, she said, "Well." Aboriginal people have survived, and it's and it's good to survive in a war or revolution or something, but or when you're being invaded. But she said we survived for thousands of years before that, and it was by much more being relational and relational to the environment as well as to each other. And you know, no kings, no no empires, just relational living. And I thought that was something new to me, you know, because these the settler societies that we both come from, we, we're doing incredible damage in this rampaging way. Um, needs a new, a new way of thinking about it or thinking about each other. And that's why I think we need to think internationally much more and realise that the damage we're doing elsewhere, like Australia, our coal is, is fueling your heat wave. Our coal is fueling the Pacific Islands drowning.
0: I would say I would say two things that come to mind, uh, like around looking to other societies for for solutions. For one thing, in the Americas, un- unlike in Australia, um, you know, historically, you know, the, the the indigenous peoples of the Americas <clears throat> ran the gamut historically in terms of uh, you know from from totally egalitarian. Uh, to uh, extremely authoritarian and uh, you know depending on what society we're talking about it's a whole, whole lot of societies but there was something that was really consistent in the overwhelming majority of cases from northern Canada to southern Argentina with with very few exceptions from including in both the in both of the uh, hunter-gatherer more what to be called really that's not a very accurate description but in the more sort of you know where where there's a lot of forest management and animal husbandry going on or whatever you want to call what was going on in in much of north america as opposed to the you know very authoritarian city focused empires like the aztec and inca empires regardless uh, agricultural practices that were good for the planet were the norm mm-hmm. so so that's very interesting that you don't have to it, it's not a choice between Totally destructive capitalism and a regulated market regulates industry and and does things in a way that's better for the earth. Like this, this socialist capitalist kind of dichotomy. I mean, there's other ways too, of doing things. Clearly, because it's been done. And but as far as like modern world with the U.S. and Australia, I think basically the biggest problem we face, other than the lack of imagination, is we don't have much democracy in either of these (laughs) societies, particularly in this one. Mm -hmm. And You know, the lack of democracy means that people with good ideas don't have a chance to implement them because the rich and powerful oil company, you know, they they tend to call the shots. And and in a place like Denmark, where the Social Democrats, where the labor movement or the, or the Social Democrats took over the country 100 years ago and have been running it ever since, you can see what they've done with that what they've done is that they've created like cities that are completely bicycle friendly and, and that's just one of the things that you see mm. vis- on sort a of visual basis you see like you get into any of those cities and they're all made for bicycles well that's mm. because they have democracy and most people ride bicycles and so of course you run the city you make the city for bicycles because if the car drivers are just a relative <laughs> minority then you know, they have no power because car companies don't have power because they don't run the country the people do <laughs> Yeah. So then, yeah yeah then that's bicycles
2: yeah well look i'd like to thank you david for your songs that dramatize what it's like living in these times and if listeners to want to find your songs i think the best place is just to go to this week with david rovix is there another way to go in? oh that's
0: a good place to go yeah then they'll find the latest songs and podcasts It's all there yeah okay. and they, they, they can look me up on spotify too
2: Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care.
2: Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. And thanks to Michaela at 3CR and Raul at Radio Skid Row. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Alex Smith and that you will find his Radio EcoShock podcasts to boost your knowledge. Thanks also to David Rovix, whose songs can be found at This Week with David Rovix. I'd also like to thank Kim Stanley Robinson and Dr. Elizabeth Hanna for their cameo appearances and hope to have a fuller interview with them in this series on the Ministry for the Future. It's a fabulous book for climate action ideas. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck.
1: Vivian Langford reaches out with reporting, art and heart on the Climate Action Show. 3CR 855 AM Melbourne. Listen at www.3cr.org.au I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next week on Radio Ecoshock.
0: Don't know where we're going. I know I'm not the first to feel like I'm knocking on the door of either a new dystopia or some movement of great renown. It's 116 degrees in Portland, Alabama.